All right, please open your Bibles with me today to the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 8. We'll read verses 1 through 17. Romans is Paul's introductory letter to the church there in Rome. It is probably his most comprehensive explanation of the gospel, specifically of justification, the the fact that we are declared right before God. And chapter 8 is a summary chapter, if you will, as he's wrapping up the the um, kind of theological section, his explanation of what Jesus has done for us and begins to apply that to the relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews there in the church in Rome. But today we are in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you receive the spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, as we consider these words and the words that you have given to us in the scripture We ask that you open our eyes so that we might see your glory. Open our hearts so that we might love you more. And by the power of the Spirit, change us so that we might walk closer with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question we are dealing with today is, if Paul were to write a letter to the church today, what would he say? It's understandable. Oftentimes we walk in our world and we think about how easy it would be if God would just speak to us today in a language to borrow from a a movie and a language that everybody here can easily understand. 
And so today what I want us to do is we're going to look at what was Paul's focus in his letters. We're going to look at that through this chapter here in verse 8. And we'll look to see how Paul used that focus in each of his different letters very briefly to kind of see how he applied that to the work. And then we'll see in light of what his focus was, in light of what he has already written, what would Paul write today? So what was the focus of Paul's letters? Paul wrote 13 letters. Four of them were to individuals. The rest of them were to churches or to groups of churches. And in the letters to the churches or groups of churches, he was dealing with specific issues. In some churches, it was only one issue and other churches like the church of Corinth, which had 20 different issues that Paul dealt with within the letter. Paul dealt with the issues, but before he told them what to do and how to correct the issues, he laid a foundation in each of his letters. And that foundation is the gospel. If you read Paul's letters and pay attention to the first portion of each letter, typically around half to three quarters of the letter, Paul takes the gospel and he looks at it through the lens of the difficulties that the churches are facing. Well, what is that gospel that Paul looks at? Well, the gospel Paul begins with. The, the gospel in the gospel, Paul begins with something that we looked at as we went through the book of Colossians. And this is the idea of union with Christ. If you remember in the book of Colossians, Paul talked about us, our old sinful man being crucified with Christ and that new heart, that new man being raised with him so that every believer, every child of God is declared to be holy, to be righteous, to be chosen and to be loved by God, and not only declared to be so, but in reality to be that. Paul touches on that in this passage in Romans chapter 8 when he says those that are not in filled with the Spirit cannot set their minds on the things that God desires, but those who are filled with the Spirit desire what the Spirit desires. Desire to please God. Desire to seek His glory in everything that they do. So this union of Christ comes through Jesus' work of redemption. Jesus walked this earth. He lived a perfect life. He kept God's law perfectly in letter and in spirit. He, in everything He did, He sought the glory of God. He sought to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And in doing that, He earned for Himself life. He earned for Himself the promises of eternal life in the presence of God. And yet took upon Himself the punishment for our sin, the separation that we deserve because we are rebels against God and we seek our own desires instead of Him. Condemnation has passed over those who believe in Jesus Christ and confess with their mouth that God has raised Him from the dead. Judgment has passed over them. Condemnation has passed over them. And they are clean before God. They are adopted as sons. And as being adopted as sons, they are called to change, to be more like sons instead of rebels. To live more like the Father 
instead of their former slave master, the devil, to seek to be more like the natural son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, instead of following their own desires. Instead of hostile toward God, we are moved toward pleasing God because of the work of Jesus. These realities are here and they put an obligation on each of us to pursue the holiness that is ours through Jesus work. And in fact, if you were to to read through the whole book of Romans, specifically this this first section, chapters one through eight, you would constantly get this sense that Paul is saying you are justified, you are righteous, you are holy, live as though you are justified, live as though you are righteous Live as though you are holy. When we studied Colossians, the old man is crucified in Christ. The new man is raised in Christ. Therefore, pursue holiness in all that you do. Many of us think of the gospel as something that we are afraid of or or something that we are done with once we pray the sinner's prayer and then move on to bigger and better representations of theology. But the gospel work of Jesus Christ is the entirety of our Christian life. Do you need strength in your wrestling against sin? Remember the gospel. Remember that you are holy before God. Do you struggle with guilt and shame because you fail over and over in your wrestling against sin? The gospel reminds us that we are holy, chosen and beloved before God and our guilt is cleared away. Do you struggle with guilt and shame over the sins committed against you? The gospel reminds you of your privileged status as a child of God and the glory that other sins can be forgiven as well. And when we deal with issues and difficulties in our life, it is the gospel that informs that. And so Paul begins his letters to the church with the gospel. And then he applies that gospel to each and every church or person that he writes to. Now, the gospel has some basic truths to it, truths that I have briefly touched on, truths that we could plumb the depths of for eternity. But even though those truths are there, those truths oftentimes get to be applied in different circumstances in our lives. For example, in Romans, Paul is beginning to deal with the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles in light of Jesus' work. He opens chapter one with a presentation of why the pagan Gentiles desperately need the gospel. And then lest the Jews get a little haughty or proud in chapter two, he reminds the religious Jews of why they need the gospel as well. Then as he works this out through the first eight chapters, he moves to chapters nine through eleven and talks about how through the gospel The Jews who are the original branches of the vine are there together with the engrafted Gentiles who are then grafted into the vine, which we know from John, the vine is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see that the Jews need not be proud because of their history as the people of God. And the Gentiles need not be proud because they are grafted in. Because those who show themselves not to be fruitful branches of the vine will be pruned, both original branches and grafted branches. Neither of them are there by their own will. They're there by the work of God through Jesus 
of the gospel. Nobody is part of the vine. Nobody is more important than the other. Everybody is there by the sovereign will and choice of God and the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so the Jews and Gentiles should get along in the way in because of the fact that they stand on equal footing before God because of the gospel. And first Corinthians, and I won't go into as much detail as I did there with Romans as we move through these different books. But in first Corinthians, Paul focuses on the resurrection and return of Jesus as the misapplication of the hope of the second coming has led to fractures in the church centered around discipline, the Lord's Supper, celebrity worship and spiritual gifts. The Corinthian church had taken the ideas of the blessings of the return of Jesus and had said that they were theirs now instead of having to wait for Jesus return. And this caused all types of problems. And Paul reminded them of the the things that he gave them, which were of utmost importance, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, and showed them how, yes, there are blessings now, but we await eternal blessings when Christ returns. In 2 Corinthians, Paul looks at how the gospel helps restore the community after they have dealt with the difficulties that Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians. In Galatians, people came behind Paul and said, if you truly want to be the people of God, you must add the law to the gospel as the basis of your salvation. And the Galatians bought into that. So Paul, through the gospel, reminds them that Jesus has fully kept the law and that adding rule keeping to the gospel denies the power and effectiveness of Jesus work on our behalf. In Ephesians, Paul shows how the gospel helps us to live as renewed and regenerate people in a hostile world. In Philippians, Paul's focus is on the unity that comes through union with Christ as we appropriate for ourselves through the union with Christ, the humility that Jesus had. In Colossians, Paul shows how the gospel gives us true knowledge of God and the holiness that he calls us to and that false religions and philosophies of this world cannot give us what the fullness of God in bodily form in Jesus can In the two letters to the Thessalonians, Paul reminds us of how the gospel answers our fears of death and the afterlife, as well as serve as the means of abandoning laziness. In the letters to Timothy and to Titus, the gospel helps pastors and elders structure and carry out their ministry in the local church. And in Philemon, the gospel shows us how to pursue reconciliation in a way that is countercultural in a way that the world tells us is wrong, and yet God shows us is right. Now, in each of these letters, Paul does not begin to tell the recipients how to fix the issues in their church or in their life until he first lays the foundation of the gospel, until he first reminds them of who they are in Jesus Christ, until he first reminds them of the relationship that they have with God. And how the power of the gospel through the power of the spirit gives them the means by which they can move forward in dealing with the issues in their church. So Paul starts with the gospel. Then Paul applies the gospel to the difficulties that each church is facing. 
So now that we have the framework, we can begin to answer the question, what would Paul write to the churches today? Well, to churches in our culture that think that we get new heaven and new earth blessings now before Jesus returns, blessings like health, wealth and prosperity, Paul would say the exact same thing he said to the church in Corinth in his first letter to them. To the churches who are seeking to be restored after dealing with the correction of bad theology, he would write, well, 2 Corinthians. To the churches who put laws and rules of man above the gospel of Jesus, he would write Galatians. And to the churches seeking to be faithful in a hostile world, he would write Ephesians. And I could go on and on and on. As I thought about this question, I was reminded of this verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. I was in discussion with somebody and I was pointed to a, a what we believe page on a church website a while back. Because the person reading it was trying to figure out what was wrong with the church's statement on the Trinity. And as I looked at the statement, I read it. I was reminded of a video I saw online. That's modalism, Patrick. If you haven't seen the Lutheran satire St. Patrick video, I encourage you to go watch it. Because the statement that this website had for a contemporary 21st century church was regurgitating the heresy of modalism that was condemned by a church council in the third century. If you look at the false teachings and the difficulties that churches struggle with today, they're the same difficulties, the same false teachings that Paul dealt with 2000 years ago. Because as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, what has been said before will be said again. What has been done before will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Our enemy, the accuser, Satan, has no new tricks. He has no creativity about him. The best he can do is hope that we forget the difficulties that the church has gone through before so he can try to trick them with us again. There is nothing new under the sun. We need no new scripture. Second Timothy chapter three. We talk about this in light of the inspiration of the scripture, but it speaks to us as well of the sufficiency of the scripture beginning in verse 15 of second Timothy three and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. There's the gospel. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every man of God, every person of God, every church of God has the scriptures, has absolutely everything that they need to deal with the difficulties of living in a 21st century world. And they were written down for us in the first century and earlier. Everything that we have is useful for everything that we need to move forward in this world. 
everything we need to know to deal with the false teachings that seek to creep in, to deal with the legalisms that seek to creep in, to deal with the false idea of blessings in this world that seek to creep into our church. Everything is written for us right here. We just have to open it and look at it. And I think that may be the issue. Now, I'm, I'm not accusing the person that wrote me of this, this question. Believe me, that is not my intent here. But I think many times when we seek, God, just let me hear your words so that I know what you want me to do. It's because we don't hear his word. We don't study it. And if we do crack it open, we just read it so we can check off our to-do list for the morning and move on in our life. We need to read it. We need to know it. We need to study it. Because as R.C. Sproul says, if you want to hear God talk, read his word. We have absolutely everything that we need to be a God honoring, God glorifying church today here in his word. Now, I understand. That for many of us, that answer may be a little bit unsatisfying. We are just waiting for those words in a language that every one of us here can easily understand to know what God has to say for us. But that's a glorious truth that scripture is sufficient because we don't have to wait for new revelation from God to move forward in our walk as a church and as Christians. We have the joy of knowing that everything we need for life, for faith, and for practice is right here given to us. Everything we need for salvation, the, the confession says, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, everything we need for salvation is clearly put down for us in this book. There are other things that goes on to say that are more difficult, but by due diligent study, you can begin to hear God speak. You can begin to understand what he has to say to you. He's explained how he expects us to live and the laws he expects us to obey. He has declared in his word that we fall far, far short of the standard and stand condemned. He has revealed his plan of reconciliation and salvation through Jesus. And he has shown us how that plan of reconciliation answers the difficulties and trials of living in this world. As you read, as you study, as you sit under preaching, pray that God would show you what he would like you to hear. That God would show you how you can follow him. And that God would show you how his gospel provides the cooling waters for the difficulties of living in this world. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we thank you that we have everything. We have everything we need to live a life that glorifies you. We have everything that we need to deal with the difficulties, the temptations, the, the false teachings of living in this world. Help us to study it. Help us to know it. And by your spirit, may it change us. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Our closing hymn is My Jesus, I Love Thee. It comes from the Maroon book there, hymn number 405. If you have been changed by the Spirit, if you are in the Spirit, that is a declaration that you can make. My Jesus, I love thee.
So let us stand and sing hymn number 405.